It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. As the title of his book, Drink? Question mark? Suggest? World-renowned professor of neuropsychopharmacology, David Nutt, thinks the cost-benefit analysis around consuming alcohol is an open question. He's not anti-alcohol. He regularly drinks himself, but he also thinks most people, more than two-thirds of folks around the world have had a drink in the past year, need to understand a lot more about drinking than they typically do in order to make an informed choice as to whether and how much to partake. To that end, today on the show, Dr. Nutt shares the ins and outs of something he calls both a fantastic and a horrible drug. We discuss how people acquire a taste for something that initially registers as a toxic poison and how alcohol affects the body and mind. We then delve into alcohol's long-term health consequences, including its link to cancer, the fact that it kills more people via stroke than by cirrhosis, the way it has a feminizing effect on men, and what it does to your sleep. We discuss what influences someone's chances of becoming an alcoholic and the signs you've got a drinking problem. David also argues that drinking has some benefits and offers suggestions on how to imbibe alcohol in a way that helps manage its risk. We enter a conversation with why more people are curbing their drinking and the synthetic alcohol David is developing that mimics the relaxing effects of alcohol without its negative downsides. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash drink. All right, Professor David Nutt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you have a book out called Drink, question mark, The New Science of Alcohol and Your Health. And this is a deep dive about the health consequences of alcohol consumption. I'm curious, what, what led you down that path to write this book? Well, I'm a doctor. And like every doctor, I've been confronted almost on a daily basis with the consequences of alcohol. But also, I'm a researcher, and I've spent the last 40 years of my life researching how we can help deal with the problems of alcohol. And I thought it was about time I distilled all my wisdom into a publication while I still got a memory to recall it all. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the state of alcohol consumption in the West today. What's it like? You're in the UK. Is the United States pretty similar to the UK or maybe Canada, other English-speaking countries in terms of alcohol consumption? Yeah, they're all pretty similar. People are generally drinking considerably more than they should, and certainly between 10 and 15% of the adult population have got alcohol-related problems. So are we drinking more today than in previous decades? Yeah, that's a difficult question to be precise about because, of course, um, there were periods when alcohol consumption was considerably higher than it was is today. That's before we had any regulations, like back in the 1800s. And there were periods when it was lower, like during the wartime, and, of course, um, people were away doing other things. But if we look back, say, over the last 60 years, back to the 1950s, consumption of alcohol in the West has generally risen fairly linearly. So certainly in the UK now, people are drinking on average twice what they were drinking in the 50s and 60s. And what, do, you, do we have any idea what's causing the drive or do the researchers have any idea? Oh, yes. Yes, we know a lot about it. I mean, there are, there are two main drivers to this. The first is the price hasn't kept pace with inflation. So alcohol is now a third the real cost it was when I was a student. 
you know, 40 odd years ago. That's the first thing. It's cheaper to drink now than it was before. And the second reason it's gone up is the availability. In the UK, we made a very big mistake in the 1990s, which we made alcohol readily available in supermarkets. And that massively increased the off-sales consumption. In fact, all the cons increased consumption we have seen in the last 50 years has been people buying it in supermarkets rather than buying it in, um, in bars. And you're also seeing alcohol in new forms, I, right? I guess this past year, two years, like the seltzer alcohol has been really popular. Yes. Yeah, that's quite an interesting scam in a way, isn't it? Because it's, it's selling alcohol as being healthy alcohol because it's got fewer calories. But in reality, the calorie benefits are trivial. Uh, and I think people, are dis people get confused and people genuinely think that they're, doing the they're actually reducing the risk of alcohol by drinking it without mixers, just as a seltzer water. But in fact, they're not. They're certainly not reducing the risk, and it's conceivable they might even be increasing the risk because at least if you drink alcohol with beer, you get some vitamins and some B vitamins and stuff, whereas in water, you get nothing but the ethanol. Well, I thought it was interesting. This book, I mean, really highlights the dangers, the risk of alcohol consumption, and it's something you don't typically see. I mean, we've all seen documentaries or read articles about the dangers of cigarette smoking or tobacco consumption or you know, other drug consumption. But we often forget that you know alcohol is a drug. Correct. But we kind of pretend like it's not. What do you think is going on there? Well, that's a, that's some interesting psychology. The first is because so many of us drink, we don't want it to be a drug, do we? <laughs> we don't want to be drug addicts. We don't want to be drug users. But the first thing is you know that we've we have blinkers, deliberate we blinker ourselves to the truth because we enjoy drinking, and, and I have to say you know the same is true for me. You know, Alcohol is is the ultimate social drug. Most of us have multiple examples of really good social interactions which were lubricated by alcohol. So we want it to be safe because we want to use it. Second thing is that the drinks industry has become very, very wise. It hasn't it, it looked at what happened to the tobacco industry, where the tobacco industry tried to hide the evidence of the risks and the addictiveness of tobacco, and then were caught out and, and very savagely attacked. The drinks industry admits that alcohol is a problem, but it says the way you deal with that is to drink responsibly, which, of course, I think is one of the uh, most ridiculous statements of all, because <laughs> quite a lot of people drink to lose their sense of responsibility. And even if they don't deliberately try to do that, alcohol takes away that control. So, But the industry has kind of protected itself by saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we... We know there's a problem. We're not denying a problem, but it's your problem, not our problem. And then the third thing is that the, um, the drinks industry has been very good at lobbying to uh, maintain its status. So, for instance, in Britain, we can't advertise tobacco on TV, but we can advertise alcohol because the drinks industry has been such an efficient lobbying organization that it's got most of our politicians, I think, genuinely believing that alcohol is a good thing rather than a bad thing for people. And you also know, I mean, there's some some kind of I don't know, you can call them nefarious things. Like you were you you did some reports talking about how alcohol could be considered the most dangerous drug in the United Kingdom. If you look at all yes. the, but sometimes that gets left out of official reports. They don't they tend to ignore that. Well, there was this famous report in my book. I described this famous Blair government report on looking at how to deal with the harms of all drugs, and then suddenly when it gets published, they've taken out the alcohol chapter. And I spoke to the secretary of the, of, of the whole um, whole research program. And she said, yeah, well, you know, the drinks industry said there were good things from alcohol and you said there were bad things. So we thought, well, how can we arbitrate 
And we said, well, hang on, we're the scientists. And they're the drinks industry. We kind of know the truth about both sides. They only care about their side. All right, well, let's talk about what happens to our, our bodies and mind when someone consumes alcohol. Let's start when it goes into your mouth. And you you talk about how alcohol is an acquired taste because, because everyone else says that, oh, it's, it's an acquired taste. And you say, well, it's an acquired taste because alcohol by itself tastes really bad and is unpleasant. What is it about alcohol that tastes bad and feels like burning when you drink it? Well, it burns your mouth in the same way as it burns your skin when you put alcohol on the skin to kill bugs. Alcohol is an extremely toxic substance. It damages the cells of your skin. It irritates your nerves, which is why it burns and does the same to your mouth. You could, you know, if actually all the only alcohol we had available to everyone forever was kind of neat rubbing alcohol, most people wouldn't drink because they'd hate the taste. When we drink alcohol, we are almost always drinking alcohol that has been changed, diluted, have had the taste of other things added, whether it's in the process of making the alcohol, like in beer, or whether it's in the process of mixing the alcohol with mixers, like with spirits. But even then, it's still an acquired taste. But then, so if it kind of tastes unpleasant, like what causes people to have that drive to drink? Well, yes. So there are several factors, and there are different factors at different stages of a person's drinking history. So when you first drink, even alcohol, when it's in the form of beer or in the form of wine or in the form of, I'll say, a whiskey or something, where it's got other flavorings, those aren't very pleasant either. So beginner drinkers often add sugar or or lemonade to their drinks, and that's where breezers come in. Breezers, these rum breezers, which are basically like alcoholic lemonades, they make alcohol potable to young people. So the first thing is they, you know, then, and then once they can drink it, they then get the effects. And of course, it's the effects which are pleasurable. People drink alcohol largely for the effects. But in time, they attribute the effects to the taste, and then they get to like the taste. Okay, so let's, it goes past your mouth. It's a little unpleasant, it burns, but once you get the effects, it becomes desirable. What happens when alcohol gets to your stomach? And I'll just say, it's a, there's one, just one aspect about drinking. It's a bit like smoking when you get the catch at the back of your throat with alcohol, particularly people drinking um, distilled spirits, you know, like a scotch or a vodka. That burning in itself becomes associated with the pleasure that's going to happen in a few minutes. So that gets to be liked as well because it's a, a kind of forewarner, you know, oh, great, now I'm going to get hit in a, a little while. So even that burning experience can end up being pleasant anticipatory but then it goes down into your gullet and it burns down there a bit and then it gets to your stomach yeah, and then it gets absorbed and it goes through your liver and your liver tries to get rid of it because the liver says this is a, this is really bad stuff guys this is we're being poisoned and the liver cells work like hell to get rid of it but of course they can't get rid of it all and if some gets up through the liver into the brain and then wow the brain starts to say this is different this is interesting hey i'm chilling out hey i like this i'm calm i'm relaxed I feel like going to talk to that person at a party instead of sitting in the corner being inhibited. And that, that breakdown of social anxiety is where alcohol is such a powerful drug. And that really is the main reason most people drink. All right. So uh, alcohol goes to your stomach. It goes through the liver. The liver is basically, I mean, alcohol is a poison, yep. uh, essentially. And so the liver's, their job is like, we're going to filter that stuff out. Yep. And we'll talk about what happens when the liver is constantly having to filter alcohol. But let's talk about what happens when the alcohol crosses the blood-brain barrier. So you mentioned, okay, you start feeling more social, a little more loose. Like, what is going on in our brain with the neurochemicals oh, yes. in our brain? 
Well, alcohol has a, is very complicated, but the very early stages, the very the, when you're beginning to get the effect of alcohol, it's be, in the relaxing sociability effects. That's because alcohol is beginning to turn on what's called the GABA system. GABA stands for gamma amino butyric acid. And it's one of the two major neurotransmitters in the brain. And it's the calming neurotransmitter. It keeps the brain calm. And that's pretty important because if the brain isn't calmed, then you go on and have anxiety or you have seizures. So GABA is always working to calm the brain. But when you go into a circumstance where you get stressed, you need more GABA. And you many people can't make enough. So alcohol tops up the GABA and starts to calm you down. And that is why it reduces anxiety in circumstances like parties. But also think about aeroplanes. What's the first thing they do when the uh, fastened seatbelt sign is turned off? They start serving alcohol because a vast number, a huge, probably a huge, almost a majority of people hate flying and they, they find alcohol is a good way of calming their nerves. And then also it does other things too. It increases dopamine, which mm. gives alcohol its... You know, you want it, it makes it desirable is that dopamine release. Well, for, yes. So, I mean, let's be f- clear that different people value alcohol for different reasons. So, some people value alcohol because it calms them and relaxes them. And some people value alcohol because it deadens the pain and the misery of their lives. But some people like alcohol because it, it, yeah, it gets them up and gets them going. And that is the dopamine release. And they, they enjoy the energy it gives them. And that's why it's a really quite remarkable drug because it calms you down and yet it stimulates you at the same time. So like a poor man's Purple Heart. Do you remember Purple Hearts in the Korean War and the Vietnam War? This combination of barbiturates and um, amphetamines. Well, alcohol is like a kind of cheaper, less powerful version of those. And then it also releases endorphins in addition to dopamine. That's, that's right. It's quite hard to find any neurotransmitter system in the brain that alcohol doesn't affect. But we're absolutely very clear. It does release endorphins. And that may be why it is very appealing to some people. It may also be the, one of the reasons why people become addicted to it because endorphins are basically the body's equivalent of morphine and heroin uh, not as potent as those drugs but certainly work in the same way and uh, can begin to drive people to an addictive um, use of alcohol what happens like in different stages of drunkenness so you, know, you have that you know, maybe that first drink what's going on so there's gaba being released at that point so serotonin no, not released. Let me, it's quite maybe a bit technical but let me just it's not it, alcohol doesn't release gaba what it does is it mimics it oh, okay. gaba's being released and then alcohol comes along and it makes the release gaba better it gotcha. kind of facilitates augments gives a little bit of extra oomph to the gaba that's there gotcha uh, okay so in the beginning it's giving that oomph to the gaba that's there so that's what causes maybe less inhibition you start talking louder more gesturing, etc. Yeah, you're more relaxed. That's right. It's about taking, yeah, you're, you're taking away the inhibition, which is, I mean, social inhibition is one of the cardinal features of humanity. Humans are quite rightly so very suspicious of other people because you know other people could be from other tribes and societies, and you know, you, people generally, gen, yeah, anxiety is a kind of good state to be in because it protects you from doing ridiculous things, dangerous things. But alcohol. But of course, anxiety is not really useful when you're in a social situation. You want to start chatting to someone in a party, but you can't. Overcoming that's challenging. Alcohol does reduce that anxiety, that social anxiety, through potentiating GABA. Yeah. At what point does you know reduced reaction times or slurred speech or you know stumbling start yes. happening? 
happening. Right. So as as you, as, the, as you build up, so you start off by by enhancing GABA, then you begin to interact with the dopamine system, and, and some people you, people get energized and active, and 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 then as you begin to increase it a bit more, then people become maybe more empathetic, and then maybe a bit of serotonin is uh, is turned on, and that that is actually. Serotonin plus GABA is a really good combination for socializing and just having fun and being with other people and warming to them, becoming affectionate. But then as you begin to push it up again, once you start to get over about 100 milligrams per cent, which is sort of twice the drink driving limit in most countries, then you begin to interfere with a system called glutamate. Now, glutamate is the opposite. It's the alter ego of GABA. GABA calms you down. Glutamate activates you. But... Glutamate is the driver. Glutamate is like the electricity of the brain. And what alcohol does to glutamate is to block it. So so alcohol starts stopping the brain working properly. And that's where you begin to get into the experience of slurring your speech and becoming a little unsteady. And then, of course, if you keep pushing the drink up and up and up, then you get into the situation where um, you start to forget what you've uh, been doing because... uh, Glutamate's vital for laying down memories. And then it can get to the point, I guess, where there's so much glutamate blocked where you black out or yes, potentially absolutely. just dying. That's the, that's the well, ultimate thing that can happen to you. Absolutely. Alcoholic blackouts are called blackouts because you can't remember anything. When you block glutamate to a level, uh, a certain level, you get blackouts. It's like an anesthetic. You know, that's what many anesthetics do. They take away the glutamate so you, you're not conscious. Um, so you can't remember and then, of course, if you keep on blocking glutamate, glutamate, because it's the, as I say, it's the electricity of the brain, it's just like sw- eventually flowing the switch. And people, if you haven't got enough glutamate to make your diaphragm and your chest muscles move, then you stop breathing and you are dead. And in Britain, about three young people a week die of alcohol poisoning. In America, it's probably more like 10 or 20, I would think. Okay, so that's what happens when you, you drink alcohol. Let's talk about the next day. What happens afterwards? What is, and I think a lot of people have experienced a hangover. Mm. What causes, what's going on when someone's having a hangover after drinking alcohol? It's very hard to actually be precise about this. There's almost no research been done on a, on a hangover, no scientific research. It's one of the least, in terms of the research per impairment of life years, it's one of the least studied aspects of humanity. Because hangovers actually cause more burden. The cost of hangovers to society is greater than the medical costs of alcohol. In Britain, at least three times greater. And of course, so many people suffer from hangovers for so often. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that um, the, in Britain, the first constraints ever on the time people are allowed to drink, the beginning of licensing hours, which I think is true now in most countries, was in the First World War. And we stopped people drinking at 10 o'clock in the evening so that they wouldn't have hangovers so they could go work, go to work the next day. Because it used to, it used to be this famous um, saying in the British mines that basically the miners did a four-day week because they were so drunk at the weekend they couldn't go to work on a Monday. But anyway, put that to one side. Hangovers are hugely problematic to, economically, but also they're you know, very distressing to the people who've got them. In fact, driving with a hangover is almost as impairing as driving when you're drunk, depending on how drunk you are. But the uh, hangover usually is as impairing as the threshold for drink driving. So despite all that, there's very little research 
What we can say is that obviously hangovers relate to how much you've drunk and they relate to uh, the, how long after you've drunk. Obviously, they get better. The longer you've uh, been sober, the, the better they get. They often, to some extent, are worsened by the fact that we tend to drink at night and therefore when we go to sleep, our sleep is disrupted by alcohols and, and the hangovers. We wake up early, so we're sleep deprived as well. And what's actually going on in the brain is, as I say, not well understood. It, there is some evidence it's due to dehydration. Some people drink a lot of water before they go to bed to stave off hangovers, a little bit of evidence for that. There's growing evidence it's due to inflammation in the brain, which will explain why drugs you know, such as acetaminophen, and, which is paracetamol in the UK, and, and ibuprofen can be useful either when you go to bed or when you wake up with a hangover to deal with the uh, not just the pain, but also the uh, inflammation. We've been doing some work recently showing that there are things called cytokines. And when you get ill, say, say you get COVID or you get flu, your body pumps out cytokines. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. But the bad ones you get when you've got COVID or flu, you also get when you have a hangover. So it's a, it's, there's a sort of strong relationship with being ill and having a bad reaction. It's the same kind of biological drivers to both a hangover and, uh, and feeling sick with, with say, influenza. Yeah, and you also talk about you know withdrawal or I mean hangovers are basically it's a withdrawal. Like you you've had this drug and your body is responding by now now that it's not no longer has that drug. Yes, let me just be clear about it. There, there are two separate elements to hangover. There is absolutely the withdrawal, and the withdrawal is particularly around glutamate. That when you get drunk enough to have a hangover, you have started to block the glutamate receptors. And, and what they do, because as I said, these are the crucial mediators of brain function. It is like the electricity of the brain. You've, if you, you've got to keep your glutamate working. Now, if you block glutamate receptors, it's not working as well. So what the brain does is make more of the receptors to overcome, to offset the effects of the alcohol. And once it's done that, there's more of them in the brain so that when, you, when the alcohol levels start to fall overnight, you've actually got more receptors, so you've got more glutamate. So it's like turning on the light, turning on the noise in your brain because uh, you've actually got more throughput. So that's the first thing. So that's, the, that's where you get the sleep disruption and the, the bright lights and the noises are too loud and, and uh, the arousal and the pounding heart, etc., from a hangover. That's because the glutamate system is, in with, is turned on in withdrawal. But then, then the other components, particularly the pain components, are due to this inflammation. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So let's, we've talked about what happens to our bodies and our brain whenever we drink alcohol. Let's talk about the long-term health consequences of regular drinking. So let's talk about the, the, th- the organ we most associate with alcohol, and that's the liver. What does alcohol do to the liver? Well, it's uh, actually generally not a good thing for the liver because the liver has to get rid of it. And most of the breaking down, the metabolism of alcohol is done in the liver. And the problem is that the alcohol gut's got to get into the liver and it's toxic to the liver. But also it's broken down. The first stage of the metabolism is to a molecule called acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is particularly toxic because it's very closely related to formaldehyde. And I think you probably all know that formaldehyde is the pickling agent that dead bodies are pickled in uh, and it stops dead bodies going off. 
because it basically seals all the proteins and enzymes in the body into an inactive form. So acetaldehyde does something similar, and that is a, a bit of a problem because your liver gradually pickles itself, and eventually you get what's called cirrhosis. And what's cirrhosis? I mean, cirrhosis is just a hardening of the liver, right? Well, cirrhosis basically is where the liver becomes fibrotic. It becomes very hardened because cells, the liver cells are dead and they get inflamed. And then, as you know, if you get some inflammation in your skin, you get get something under your skin for a while, the skin goes hard and the liver goes hard. And and it's because more and more of the liver is dying. So you've got less and less of the liver available to do the work of, um, of making proteins and also metabolizing alcohol. And that's why, I mean, this can even happen acutely. You can get sort of a version. It's not cirrhosis, but like a hepatitis from heavy drinking. Absolutely. So this is a really important thing. And it's something we tended not to say in the past. But more and more now, we're seeing young people binge drinking really heavily and getting what's called acute alcoholic hepatitis. And this is when the liver gets so inflamed by huge amounts of poison called alcohol that the liver actually is damaged as if it's been sort of punched. And that acute hepatitis, as the liver cells die, they reduce, release substances which kill other cells. And uh, it's like having a viral hepatitis and it can actually destroy the liver and people die. And we have now, we have wards of young people with hepatitis waiting for liver transplants. Now, previously, people couldn't afford to drink that much. They tend, it was a rare thing. When I was a medical student, you only saw it on sailors. They'd be at sea for three, four, five months. They'd come in and they spend all their money over a weekend getting completely wasted. And so it was something that you saw in the seaports. But now we're seeing it amongst young people who are you know, going on binge games and weekends of binging. So it's a, it's a huge problem. And, it, and it, can be, it can be terminal. If you can't get a transplant, then you may just die. All right, so acute alcohol hepatitis is a possibility if you drink a lot, the cirrhosis of the liver where the liver just sort of gets fibrous and stops doing its job. And then another consequence is because you're constantly inflaming the liver with alcohol is liver cancer. That's another issue that can happen. Yes. I mean, liver cancer tends to come after this, the liver becomes damaged and cirrhotic. So, so cirrhosis is a, a stepping stone to, um, to cancer as well. Although some people get liver cancer without having cirrhosis. I mean, there is an interesting paradox here. We, we actually don't understand why some people are very vulnerable to cirrhosis and cancer and others not. It's, it's probable that there are genetic factors which are predisposed to liver cancer in the same way as um, breast cancer, but that's not well established. Well, besides liver cancer, long-term drinking can also cause other cancers. What does the research say there? Yes, well, the research says um, for a long time we've known the relationship between uh, drinking in mouth and uh, pharyngeal, you know, gullet cancers, and also stomach cancer. And, and perhaps the most interesting recent discovery is the relationship between drinking and breast cancer. Pancreatitis is something we haven't talked about. And acute pancreatitis can be, occur in, in, as a result of heavy drinking. But, but pancreatitis is also a common consequence of chronic drinking. And very many cases of pancreatic cancer are probably related to long-term consumption of alcohol. And the pancreas is actually quite, of course, a very, it's tucked away right at the back of the abdomen. So it's, um, pancreatic cancer often presents quite late and it's very hard to treat. We don't have any good treatments yet. All right. So cause other cancers, another system that it affects in a, in a bad way is our cardiovascular system. What happens to our cardiovascular system with you know, regular drinking? 
Yeah, this has been an area of huge debate. This is an area where there's probably the most greatest disagreements between even experts. So it used to be said for a very long time that we had, there was this phenomenon called the French paradox. The French drank lots and lots of wine, but they didn't seem to die of heart attacks. And everyone said, well, that's, uh, that's because the wine was protecting them from the heart attacks. Now, that has been looked at in a great deal of detail over the last 20, 30 years. And it turns out that the protective effects of alcohol on the heart are really quite minimal. They may, they may exist in France. They, if they do exist at all, they exist for red wine. Uh, and if they exist at all, they, they exist for small amounts of red wine. You know, like, you know, half a glass of red wine a day will optimize the protective effects if there are any. And they've only ever been shown for men, not for women. And so the question is, when you look at the overall burden of alcohol to the cardiovascular system, is that important? And the answer is probably not, because we know that alcohol kills more people through hypertension and stroke than it kills from cirrhosis. In fact, alcohol is one of the major causes of high blood pressure. And it's uh, we don't know what the cause of high blood pressure in the majority of people with hypertension is. We call it idiopathic hypertension, which means we don't know what causes it. But what we do know is that if you get people to cut down their drinking, their blood pressure is very likely to come cut down. So it's one of the first parts of call for a doctor dealing with someone with high blood pressure. And of course, as I said, the stroke consequences of high blood pressure are very, are very considerable. It, it kill, causes stroke, and it also, of course, causes heart attacks and, and heart failure. And then if you go beyond that, uh, heavy drinking can cause a myopathy, can cause a damage to the heart in the same way as it can cause a damage to the liver. The heart gets just begins to become inflamed and toxic, and so you go into chronic heart failure. And then on top of that, there's also this phenomenon of hemorrhagic stroke, where you, you have a bleed as opposed to a clot. And alcohol precipitates or predisposes to hemorrhagic stroke because alcohol impairs your ability to essentially to, to clot if you are bleeding. So if you start to bleed in your brain, alcohol makes that worse. So there are a number of different factors um, predisposing to cardiovascular events. And then on top of that, you've also got the fact that alcohol, certainly in some people, if particularly if they're um, eating as well, you, the, the calorie load of alcohol will also contribute to conditions like um, obesity and laying down atherosclerosis, which of course then leads to the other kind of stroke, which is the um, infarction, you know, the blockage stroke as opposed to the hemorrhagic stroke. So all these things, the, the cancer risk, the stress on our cardiovascular system, I mean, the studies show if the more you drink, the longer you drink, your risk of dying increases it's 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 exponential like you have a chart well that's the really important point brett i mean i think let's just go over that a bit slowly because make sure people understand yeah the relationship of alcohol to harm is as you said exponential and what that means is the more you drink the very much more harms you get And, and let me give you an example so for instance if you're drinking half a bottle of wine a day or that equivalent that will probably take maybe one year off your life, over, say, a 50-year of life, adult life. 
if you're drinking a whole bottle of wine a day, that will probably take four. So you've, you've doubled the consumption, but you've quadrupled the impact on health. And then if you go from one bottle of wine a day to two bottles of wine a day, you'll go from taking four years off your life to 16 years off your life. So at the high end, high consumption over about the equivalent of a bottle of wine a day, that does have a very big impact on your life expectancy. So beyond the cancer risk, the cardiovascular risk of alcohol consumption, alcohol also has been shown to negatively impact hormones and fertility. What does the research say there? Well, it's uh, absolutely. I mean, it's well known that heavy drinking in men causes what we call feminization and that men grow breasts and they start to get stree stripes on their on, on their abdomen and they get less testosterone levels begin to fall and that is because the the alcohol essentially damages the uh, the ability of the body to produce testosterone and so they end up having a, a surfeit of estrogens with women you have a problem you know alcohol it can also affect fertility. It will disrupt the release of hormones from the pituitary. Very often, heavy drinking women stop having menstrual cycles. Uh, and in the end, they will suffer other consequences of that, such as um, osteoporosis, damaged skin, thin skin, bleeding in the, under the skin as well. This is the classic telltale marks, you know, the little star-shaped marks that under the skin where the blood vessels get disrupted and the red face, et cetera. So, so yes, it have, pretty much most hormones in the body are negatively affected by, uh, by alcohol. Okay, so we've been talking about the cumulative effects of drinking over time, but alcohol can also have some immediately negative effects. I mean, there's drunk driving, of course. I think alcohol plays a role in something like half of all fatal car accidents. There's also violence. Drunk people have a tendency to get into fights. Drunk people are more likely to be victims of violent crime because they're easy targets. But on a less serious basis, alcohol also can significantly affect our sleep, which can have an impact on our health, our productivity, and quality of life. And people think, oh, you know, alcohol, that helps you get to sleep. Uh, I'm going to have a nightcap. But you say, I mean, the research says, yeah, it, it might help you get to sleep faster, but you're not going to have good sleep. Oh, don't I know that? <laughs> yes, I was just the other day, I, I had a couple of glasses of wine late at night watching a film. And then I, I woke up at five the next morning. Why am I waking up at five? What's going on? And I thought, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I had two glasses of wine the night before. And yeah, so I'll talk you through the process because it's, it's pretty well established now what's going on. Yeah, so alcohol is a sedative. It does promote the effects of GABA and GABA helps you sleep which is why a lot of people do drink before they go to bed. But uh, as, as I've already mentioned with the glutamate system, and it's also to some extent true with the GABA system, the brain compensates. So you're, you're sedated with the alcohol, you go to sleep, but the brain is saying, ah, you know, well, the receptors in the brain are saying, you know, I've got to do, you know, they have to respond. There's no conscious decision. If they're, if they're overstimulated or blocked, they've got to respond. So they respond. So while you're asleep, the brain is adapting to the effects of the alcohol. And then you've got more glutamate and less GABA. So you wake up early. And that's why alcohol is bad for sleep, because it's, uh, the reaction to the alcohol promotes wakefulness. Well, let's talk about the alcoholism, where someone, this is beyond your drinking yeah. socially. This is where you become dependent. Do we know why some people become alcoholics and some don't? Well, we know that there 
is a strong genetic component to alcoholism. What we don't know is exactly what that is in most people. We know that there are, you know, alcoholism often runs in families. Uh, there seem to be some particular genetic you know, groups that seem to be particularly prone to the binge drinking. It's often seen in the sort of Northern Europeans. You know, some people think it's a Viking gene that got spread to Scotland and Ireland in the north to Canada, why it occurs a lot in the northern latitudes. We don't know what the gene is, but it's certainly there, is, there are strong genetic relationships. But it's likely that that's not just about alcohol. It's likely that there are also genetic vulnerabilities to addiction it's them, itself. We know that identical twins have a very high likelihood of becoming alcoholic if they one's alcoholic, but also they also have increased risk of other addictions. So yes, it's um, there's definitely genetic risks, but we, as yet we can't really target them. I mean, what all we can say is this: if you're a, if you're a male, if you're a son of a male alcoholic, your risk of being an alcoholic is got, goes up quite substantially. So be aware of that and monitor yourself carefully if if you find yourself drinking more than other people. And in fact, that actually is it. One of the most interesting pieces of research is actually around the. Um, the GABA system in terms of alcohol vulnerability, because it seems that sons of male alcoholics are resistant to alcohol. Paradoxically, when they start drinking, they can drink more than their peers, but they don't get drunk. And so they're seen as superstars. Hey, you know, this guy can outdrink us. And they, they take on the challenge of, of drinking more than others and end up becoming damaged by that drinking, even though it's not laying waste to them immediately as it does to other people. How does someone know if they have a drinking dependence and if they're an alcoholic? Are there certain oh. telltale signs we look for? Well, it's very, very easy. If you pay attention to, to what you do and if you pay attention to what your friends say. So, you know, if you have ever, uh, a few, a few really, I'll just give you a few of the really important ones. If you ever had to drink in the morning to overcome a hangover, to go to work, you've got a problem. If anyone's ever said to you, Dave, you know, uh, you were pretty outrageous last night. You know, do you realize, you know, what a fool you made of yourself? You shouldn't have done that. Don't say, don't, talking rubbish, of course I wasn't, because you probably don't remember it, because you were probably so intoxicated you didn't remember. So if anyone criticizes your drinking, take it seriously, listen to them. If you ever get into fights or get arrested, mm -hmm, yeah, I think that's probably a good sign you're drinking too much. So, Evidence that alcohol is messing with your life at the very beginning, you know, you should start to think very objectively about what's going on with your, you know, and then take advice, make a, make a diary, have a drink diary. In my book, I talk about this plan that people should have. I think knowing how much you drink is as important as knowing what your body weight is, what your cholesterol is, what your blood pressure is. It's a fact that everyone should know and have at hand. And you should always be trying, as you're trying to always generate or reduce your weight and your cholesterol, you should always be trying to reduce your alcohol consumption. Uh, and even if you don't succeed, you should be trying. Because if you don't try, you'll never succeed. Do we know what the best treatments are for alcoholism? <laughs> well, there are very few good treatments. I mean, the success rates are very low. I mean, we're experimenting now with some, some rather unconventional treatments. I mean, up till now, the treatments have been counseling, psychotherapy, a camprosate, which is a glutamate blocker, naltrexone, an opiate blocker to stop the endorphin rush, 
but their success rates are very low, maybe, you know, two in 10, three in 10. We've actually just done a study using MDMA ecstasy uh, in alcoholics. And that, that disrupts a lot of the behavioral processes and the emotional processes which drive addiction. And uh, where that was very successful, that gave us a three times greater response than our normal psychotherapy program. So we're exploring that currently. And also some people are using ketamine. Again, a couple of sessions of ketamine can help break people's compulsions to drink, break the habits of drinking. So, so these are some of the exciting new developments, but currently treatments are generally pretty poor. So we've been talking about the negative effects of alcohol. Are there any benefits to drinking? Well, there must be. Otherwise, most of us wouldn't do it. Most of us aren't addicted. So, of course, there are. You know, and I like to say, I mean, it's my favorite drug. I drink alcohol a few times a week and uh, I enjoy it. Why, why do I enjoy it? For all the reasons that other people do, because it, it relaxes me. It makes me more sociable. It uh, makes me more convivial. It takes away some of the stress in life. Yeah, it's, I, you know, I enjoy the reminiscences that it brings back in terms of the previous pleasures. So it is actually at one level a fantastic drug. The problem is it's also quite a harmful drug. And, and you also talk, besides the social benefit, it, there's some studies that suggest that maybe alcohol can help with creativity as well because, it, that, because of that um, inhibition loosening that it causes. Well, certainly for most people, it, it gets them on the dance floor, which they wouldn't do if they weren't drinking. That's a fact. Whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. But uh, this is amazing statistic, wasn't it? Of the first six American Nobel Prize winners in literature, five of them were alcoholics. <laughs> yeah, we, no one knows whether it, you could, of course, there's no controlled study. You can't randomize Fitzgerald to alcohol or no alcohol in the beginning of his life. So there's a strong relationship, yes. The, the writers think it's helpful. Whether it is or not, I don't know. It's hard to prove. So despite, you've spent most of this book highlighting the real dangers of alcohol, but this isn't a prohibitionist screed against it. In fact, you, you said, no, no, you consume alcohol regularly, but you, you just make the case that people need to know about the risks so that they can make informed decisions on whether to drink regularly or not. And then if people do decide to drink, you offer some suggestions on how to drink sensibly or as the alcohol companies say, drink responsibly. Yes, that's right. So what are, you, you offer, there's a lot of them. What are some of the biggest pieces of advice you can offer people who, that, just to manage the risk of drinking? Well, monitor what you're drinking and think about it. And then my favorite one, by the way, my favorite one is if you're drinking as a couple, which most couples do now, over an evening with an evening meal, never open a second bottle of wine. <laughs> that's probably the most important piece of advice I could give to any couple. If you don't exceed the one bottle when you start drinking, then you know you're going to be both of you be in a range. As long as you share it, you're going to be in a range where it's reasonably contained. Don't drink every night. Try to have at least two nights a week or two days a week when you're not drinking. A good another ploy is to actually work out how to say no when your people are offering you drinks to say, you know, have a limit. I mean, a lot of people actually say, okay, I'm driving, so I may only have one drink. And that's a good way to say I'm not going to drink again anymore that evening. Um, Another one I think is quite useful is to not drink with meals because with meals, it's very, you you often take bigger mouthfuls to wash the food down. You don't savor it because you've got the taste of the food in your mouth. So the wine's just basically, you're just using the wine as a lubricant. Use water to wash food down and then savor your wine or your drinks after the meal. In fact, don't drink before meals. 
I mean, aperitifs are dangerous for two reasons. One is they encourage you to eat more. And secondly, they encourage you to drink more. And, uh, and also buy the most expensive wine or beer or, or spirits you can, because the more expensive it is, the less you're going to drink and the more you're going to want to savor it. You also note in the book there about a growing trend of companies offering non-alcoholic versions mm. of beer. You're starting to see spirits now as well. What do you think is going on with that, that demand? Well, it's clear that a lot of people don't don't want to have the health harms of alcohol, and health hacking has become a big thing. You know, who's not wearing a Fitbit telling them how many hours sleep they got last night? Which, by the way, they don't tell you very accurately. But anyway, you know, people there are a lot of people interested in their health, and they should be. I mean, one of the staggering things in the U.S. is that for the first time ever, we are seeing life expectancy of middle-aged men declining. Why? They eat too much, they're diabetic, and they drink too much. So there are people saying, look, hang on, you know, let's, uh, let's try to be healthier. And, and a, a healthy relationship with alcohol is definitely better than an unhealthy relationship. So, yes, so people are turning to uh, flavored drinks, which give you the flavors of alcohol, but without the calories and the obviously the potential harms of alcohol. The problem with those drinks is they don't give you the benefits of alcohol. And that's actually why I've been spent the last 10 years of my life trying to develop alternatives. Because I, I would love to have the relaxing, sociable effects of alcohol without the harms. And I've been working to try to invent substances and invent drinks that will do that. And we're, we're making progress. I think you know, in a few years, we'll have some on the market. Well, yeah, you got one right now that's pretty close. What's, it's a synthetic alcohol. What is, what is it called? Well, we call it Arcarel. The th- idea being Arcarel is for alcohol. What Candarel is for sugar. You get the pleasures, but without the calories or the harms. So we're working on that. That's um, beginning to go through safety testing. But we've also actually, we've got a herbal, a, a botanical drink on the market now in, in Europe called Sentia, where we've used well-established food herbs, which we know work on the GABA system to make a drink, which... Um, does give you, you know, some of the effects of alcohol, the GABA effects, the relaxation, the sociability. Unfortunately, can't sell it in the States yet because it's too expensive to air freight it over. But at some point, we hope to start manufacturing in the US. All right. So what you're doing with these alcohols, you're trying to induce the GABA response. Correct. That's right. With it. It's interesting. And the great thing is, if you just induce the GABA response, you do massively minimize a lot of the harmful consequences, particularly, you know, if you don't target glutamate, then you can't get blackouts and you won't get the the upregulation of the receptors. You won't get the hyperexcitability and withdrawal, et cetera. Well, David, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, well, you go into, yes, you go into my website on the Imperial College website. You learn a bit about that. Um, and the, you can go onto uh, the, my website for my synthetic alcohol. It's called GABA Labs. If you go on the GABA Labs website, you can, you can learn more about it there. Fantastic. Well, David Nutt, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Been an absolute delight. And that's a wonderful interview. And, uh, Thank you very much. My guest today was David Nutt. He's the author of the book, Drink, the question mark. It's available on amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash drink. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to only list the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.